turn again to the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 10. This will be our last message from the Gospel of Mark, at least uh, for a while. We'll return to this book for a short Advent series just uh, before Christmas, but uh, we're going to begin next week, the 22nd, uh, a year-long series in what I call the Gospel of Isaiah. I... uh, spent uh, our sabbatical reading and thinking about this book, and uh, it uh, had a deep and, I hope, lasting influence upon me, and I look forward to looking through some portions of the prophecy of Isaiah with you. We won't try to teach through all 66 uh, chapters. That might be uh, more than than uh, we can do, but we'll uh, take what I think are some of the most significant chapters and look at those uh, carefully. Now this, uh, this event, the story of blind Bartimaeus and the restoration of his sight, is the last of the so-called healing miracles in the Gospel of Mark, and one that I think is uh, very, very important. Let's uh, look at it together. I'll begin reading with verse 46. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, Son of God, or Son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up on your feet. He's calling for you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Uh, Jesus in his chapter is still on the road to uh, Jerusalem. He is now accompanied by a vast throng of, of pilgrims. It was Jewish law that all able-bodied males had to make an appearance before the Lord in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. But because of the uh, growth in population size in uh, Israel, the rabbis had reinterpreted that command to mean that all able-bodied males within 15 miles of the city of Jerusalem had to make that uh, annual trek. And it appears that Jericho was one of those collecting points. That's why uh, Mark mentions that there was a vast uh, multitude at this point. Probably half of the people in the city of Jericho were lining the uh, street. The other half were making their way through the streets of Jericho on their way to uh, Jerusalem. Jericho at this time in history uh, was a winter resort, much like uh, Sun Valley or uh, Palm Springs would perhaps be a better uh, simile. Uh, Jerusalem is uh, fairly high. It's about 2,500 feet above sea level. It tends to get cold and clammy in the wintertime. It even snows in the winter. And uh, Wealthy people usually had uh, villas down in Jericho, which they... Uh, to which they went during the winter to get away from the chill. 
This was uh, Herod's summer or winter White House, sort of like uh, Camp David or Hyannis Port. Uh, this is where he held court during the winter months. He'd build a vast uh, palace there. Uh, archaeologists digging at that site have discovered a peculiar construction that's only found one other place in the world. It's found at Pompeii, the uh, city that was destroyed by Vesuvius. And it's only found in the villas along the uh, river and along the uh, ocean. Uh, apparently, uh, this was a place, Jericho was a place of great affluence, sophistication. This is where the, uh, the rich and the beautiful live during the summer, sort of like, uh, or during the winter, rather, somewhat like uh, Sun Valley. I always feel a little creepy when I come into Sun Valley or Vale or one of those... Uh, winter resorts. It it always occurs to me that I'm glad I'm not a woman living in Sun Valley because if I were a woman, I'd be real ugly. And uh, ugly is out in Sun Sun Valley. And so is poor. Uh, If you are poor, you have to look rich anyway. And that was something of the climate in uh, in Jericho. And in the midst of this, uh, we find this uh, Poor, blind, desperate beggar, uh, Bartimaeus. You have to understand there was a lot of hostility toward Jesus at this time. It had become uh, much more overt, much more pervasive, and particularly among the clergy. And Jericho, interestingly enough, was uh, a place where there were a large number of priests living. There were some 20,000 priests as well as Levites that served uh, the temple in, in Jerusalem. 26 uh, courses of priests, teams of priests that served there, and of course they couldn't serve at one time, and uh, there wasn't room for them to live there, and so many of them lived in uh, in Jericho. So this crowd uh, would have uh, would have been made up of disciples who were friendly toward Jesus, some who were undecided and undecided, and some who were definitely hostile toward him. And you can see something of the scorn with which they held Jesus when he's referred to in this text as Jesus. Of Nazareth. Nazareth is akin to our word podunk, uh, Hicksville. Uh, you may remember the occasion in, uh, that John records when uh, Philip went to tell Nathaniel about Jesus, and Nathaniel said, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Uh, they thought of Jesus as a hayseed, as a hick, because he came from the little town of, of Nazareth. A great deal of scorn and derision in that uh, simple uh, description of Jesus coming from, being the Nazarene, coming from uh, the city of Nazareth. And in this, uh, in this same crowd, you find this uh, blind beggar, Bartimaeus, he's called. Actually, uh, that's not a name, that's a nickname. We don't really know what his name was. I can't imagine any mother saddling a son with a name like that because essentially it means a son of uncleanness. You may recognize the etymology of the word bar, which means son. Bar mitzvah means son of the law. It's an Aramaic, not a Hebrew, but an Aramaic term. And uh, Tamaya is the Aramaic word. Aramaic was the uh, national language of, of Israel at that time. Uh, the word Tamaya means unclean. Dirty, and the idiom "son of" all the way through the Old and New Testament signifies one characterized as. So, this uh, this beggar was characterized as unclean, dirty, 
kind of person you shrink from, like the transients, uh, the street people, the dope dealers, the addicts, the people that sleep under the bridges in, uh, here in the, in the city, the, the down and, and outers, the poverty-stricken, the people that uh, live down along the river, the motorcycle types. But it, it also is characteristic, I believe, of the up and outers. The people that uh, spend too much money on themselves, the people that party too much, the people that drink too much, the people that we're inclined to shrink from because they they do everything in excess. We read about them in People magazine, and we we just we don't like to hear about those things. They bother us. We wouldn't want to be around people like that. They're not our our kind of people. I think that's that's the kind of people that that Bartima, Bartimaeus symbolizes uh, for us. These are the people that we think of as not interested in spiritual things. They don't go to church. They don't carry Bibles. They don't listen to preaching. They don't seem to have any interest in in spiritual things at all. That's true of those who are down and out as well as those that are that are up and out. But as Augustine says, God puts salt on all of our tongues so we'll thirst for him. There is that... That yearning, that, that longing for something more that everyone has may not be identified with, uh, with church. If they felt it on Sunday, it might repel them, but they feel it on Saturday. And it's just something missing. I've told the story before of the uh, young man who's a friend of mine who was killed in a knife fight in, in San Francisco, a member of a motorcycle gang there, and the president of the gang asked me to speak at his funeral conduct the funeral service along with another friend, Ron Ritchie. And uh, after the service, the uh, president of the club came up and he said, uh, you know, he said, I've got a putt and a pad and an old lady, but I ain't got no peace. He had a chopper and he had a place to stay and he had a, he had a young woman on his arm, but he didn't have any peace. And I've often thought about that statement. It's true of everyone. You may have a Beamer and a condo in Sun Valley and, and have a lovely young uh, Hollywood starlet on your arm, but uh, you probably don't have any peace. God has put salt on your tongue. And that hunger and that thirst for something more is uh, designed to lead you to him. And sooner or later, it's inevitable, everyone, Everyone runs up against something that he or she cannot cope with. Some hopeless situation like this, uh, this dear, dear man we call Bartimaeus, the son of uncleanness, who was blind. And uh, no one could help him. The physicians couldn't help him. The priests couldn't heal him. In fact, there is not uh, any reference in the Old Testament to someone being blind and being cured of their of their blindness. Man was in in desperate straits. There's no human solution for his uh, for his problem. And sooner or later I think everyone runs up up against that barrier. Doesn't make any difference what side of the tracks you're from. Doesn't take long before you discover something hopeless in your life. Some of you may have seen that segment on uh, 48 Hours last Friday night. That was a heartbreaker. That was one of the most poignant uh, uh, programs I've seen in recent months. It was about the homeless 
And uh, the, the, I guess the most painful segment was about the children that are living on the streets, often supporting themselves and their drug habits through uh, prostitution. And there was a young woman that kept appearing in that program over and over again. She was a young prostitute in her middle 20s, hard, hard woman, just bitter and a great deal of coldness. You could see it in, in her eyes. And they interviewed her at different times during the, the hour. Uh, and in between, they had other uh, other people that they were concerned with, and she just kept turning up. And and uh, in the middle of the program, you, you understood what her problem was. She had an addiction, a long-term addiction, a uh, drug that she could not uh, could not kick, drug habit that she could not kick. She'd come from a middle-class home. Her sisters were both uh, very successful in, in, in their chosen endeavors, but this young woman was on the outside living on the street. She had no home. She supported her drug habit through prostitution. And at the very end of the program, they were talking to her, and, and she began to weep. And she said, I just want to go home. But she couldn't. She was in the grip of this powerful force over which she had no, uh, no control. And that's true of the street walkers, and that's true of the man and woman on Wall Street. These people have the same sort of circumstances that they, uh, that they encounter. They simply cannot cope with something in life. I understand that uh, Steve McQueen, when he discovered that he had an incurable illness, uh, came to Christ at the very end of his life. That's also true, I understand, of Rock Hudson. When he, at the final stages of his age, someone led him to Christ. And someone came up after the morning service and... Uh, told me that John Wayne, uh, a.k.a. Don uh, Pettinger, uh, <clears throat> John Wayne, in his, I almost said waning days, I didn't mean that pun, in his last days, uh, he also came to Christ. And uh, very often this is what you find, people in extremity, people that have no place to turn to, will sooner or later turn uh, to Christ, and that's what this desperate beggar did. He cried out in extremis, "Lord Jesus, help me!" Now, there's an interesting problem in this text. Uh, cynics, skeptics of the New Testament, make much of what appears to be a contradiction here: that some of the Gospels refer to Jesus healing this man as he left Jericho; others refer to his encounter with this man as he went into Jericho. Uh, for me, it was a very easy way to reconcile those two points of view. I mean, obviously, the people that compiled the New Testament were uh, wise enough to know that there, there seems to be a contradiction here. Uh, the, the contradiction can be explained this way, I think. The man started shouting at Jesus the moment he came into Jericho, and he shouted at him the entire time while he was traveling through the streets of Jericho and perhaps moving along with the crowd and found a place at the uh, gate as Jesus left Jericho and continued to shout. The uh, verb uh, that's uh, translated shouting here is in a dur- has a dirty sense. He just kept on shouting, and it's the strongest word that can be found in the New Testament. Uh, he was yelling at the top of his lungs, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. He would not give up because he realized that he had he had no other source of help. He tried everything, and he came to Jesus by the process of, of uh, elimination. Now, 
it's interesting that he refers to him as the son of David. Uh, those who do not have much background in the New Testament may not understand the significance of that term. We sing about Jesus being the son of David uh, during the Christmas season, but we really do not understand the importance of that of that phrase. It had come in Jesus' day to to refer uh, to the Messiah as a messianic title. He was not only called the Son of Man, he was referred to as the Son of God, and he was referred to as the Son of David, a direct descendant of David, in David's line, part of David's house. Now, to bring us up to speed, because we may not be as familiar with the Old Testament, I would like to go back uh, to the passage from which that idea originates, Second Samuel 7. If you turn there with me. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, and then 2 Samuel. So you just work your way uh, to that Old Testament book. 2 Samuel 7. David had just thrashed the Philistines, 48 to 14. And uh, he had a moment of peace and rest. So he says to Nathan, I want to do something for God. I want to build him a house. And uh, that seemed like the thing to do. You want to do something for God. We all feel that way from time to time. And uh, God, as is typical of him, says to David, David, I don't want you to do anything for me. What can you do for me? Uh, the, The... the world's my footstool. I mean, you know, if I wanted to build a house, I'd build one. I don't want you to build a house. I want to do something for you. See, that's grace. God just wants to give. Totally underwhelmed by our efforts to try to do something for him. Unimpressed. Doesn't want it. He just wants us to receive. He's the giver of all good and perfect things. So he says to, says to David, a little twist on this term, house. I don't want you to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house, a dynasty that will endure forever. And this chapter is all about that, uh, that promise. And he, and he says down in verse uh, 12, 2 Samuel seven twelve, When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your, and here the word is seed. The New International Version translates offspring and obscures a little bit that, that concept of the seed that we've talked about, the seed that was passed on from one generation to the next, the seed of Eve that would someday come to bring uh, redemption to the world. I will raise up your, your seed to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. So there would be a seed and there would be a kingdom. He's the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And in one statement, he moves David out of the minor leagues into the main line of what God is doing in order to bring salvation to the world. you understand that? Because none of David's sons ever lived forever. You have this quantum leap from David's sons to the one who would come, who would, who would redeem the world and, and, and fix this sorry mess that we've made of things and Put, put the world back together and restore our, our dignity, see? And, uh, and he goes on to say, I, 
I will be his father and he will, will be my son. When he does wrong, I'll punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. This has its first reference to the direct descendants of David, the kings of Judah, who were often wretched men who had to be disciplined and the nation had to be purified from time to time. But it also refers in the end to our Lord Jesus who became sin for us. And when he became sin, the father flogged him. And... Uh, but, he says, my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul. The first uh, king, as you know, of Judah was, of Israel was Saul, and uh, he went mad, and, and uh, God took the kingdom away from him, and he gave it to David and his descendants. But in contrast to Saul, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And... David just, uh, uh, he, you know, he's beside himself. He said, this should happen to me. I'm just a shepherd, just a lowly shepherd boy. That this should happen to me. That you should choose me. And that I should be the one to fulfill the law of the man. Now, that's the way we should read the last verse, uh, the, uh, the last phrase of verse 19. Now, let me read the whole verse. And as if this were not enough in your sight, O Sovereign Lord, you have spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And literally, the text reads from this point on, And this is the law of the man. What man? Well, the man that was promised to Eve back way back in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve uh, sinned and plunged the whole race into the fall. God said, I'm going to restore your dignity. I'm going to put things back the way they were. I'm going to clean up this, this, this debacle, this mess that you've made of, of things. And, and, and I, one of these days, one of your descendants, the man, will come and he'll set things, set things right. And you see, all through history, people kept looking for that, for that man. See, that, that's what I call bottom-line belief. That's fundamental faith. It's this notion all the way through the Old Testament that one of these days a man is coming who, who's going to set everything Everything right. That's what they hoped in. That's what they believed in. They may not have known anything else. The sacrifices in the temple, in some sense, conveyed this idea of a sacrificial uh, uh, atonement, an, an offering for sin, a lamb that would be slain for the uh, sins of the world. They had this vague picture of this suffering servant who would come. But uh, though it was vague, and there had to be a little bit agnostic about things because it, it wasn't fully revealed, they just kept clinging to this idea that someday a, a man's going to come who's going to set things right as one of the sons of David, one of the sons of David, one of the sons of Eve, one of the sons of Abraham, one of the sons of Isaac, uh, one of the sons of Judah, one of the sons of, of David, you see. And they just, they just kept clinging to this idea, and that's what put them into proximity with God. That's, that's what, how he could open his heart to them, though they were sinful, because they kept believing in the one who's to come. Let me give you an illustration of how that worked. Turn, turn to Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is, in the title, is described as a masculine of, of Ethan the Ezraite. By masculine, masculine is just a Hebrew word for uh, something to give you insight. This, this, this is an insight that this man had. His name was Ethan. He was an Ezraite. An Ezraite is an aborigine. That's the meaning of the term. This was one of the aboriginal inhabitants of Palestine. He was a Canaanite. You understand that? He wasn't a Jew. He was a Canaanite, one of the so-called cursed Canaanites, who came into the family of faith because he too looked for the son of David. And notice what he says. Yip, 
fee, he says. I have found something worth shouting about. I will sing of the love of my Lord forever. With my mouth I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. Because, verse 3, you said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. And then later on in the psalm, he repeats word for word the promise that was given to David in 2 Samuel 7. David must have published that that promise, and people in Israel knew about it, and this man read about it, and he he reminds himself and us again what... uh, What was promised? Verse 35, once for all, it's God speaking, I've sworn by my holiness, I'll not lie to David, that his line will continue forever, and his throne endure before me like the sun. It will be established forever like the moon, the faithful witness in the sky. Do you understand what he's saying? He he said, I get up every morning and I check the sun. If the sun comes up, the deal's still on. That someday, the son of David is going to bring salvation to this, 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 Sin-torn world. Checks the moon. Checks the sun. You know, if they're still up there, then it, it, it's still good. The promise is still good. See? Now, this is what kept people going. Just that, see, again, the bottom line belief. The son of David is coming. The son of David is coming. The son of David is coming. And then that day in Jericho, in the midst of that uh, super sophisticated crowd, in the midst of those priests who could have cared less, in the midst of people like Bartim, uh, blind Bartimaeus who were so desperately hungry for a, just, a, just a light, a little bit of light. Jesus came walking and he said, who is this? Who is this? And he said, ah, it's the Nazarene. And he leaps up and he says, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. See? He, uh, he understood what it, what it took. Um, there were some people that tried to hinder him. Verse 49, many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he just he just kept shouting. He wouldn't be put off. He shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Just put up this uh, thunderous racket and just kept shouting at the top of his lungs because he didn't have any place else to go. So Jesus called him. And incidentally, I want you to notice the agents that he used. This is one occasion when he didn't walk over and... Uh, make the initial contact, he uh, sent some of his disciples over to, to bring Bartimaeus to him. And then he asked him what, uh, what he wanted. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. That's, uh, there's an interesting connection between this paragraph, the paragraph about blind Bartimaeus, and James and John's request in the paragraph that precedes. I think they're directly connected in two ways. One, I think the story of blind Bartimaeus is simply, uh, blind Bartimaeus is simply an illustration of what Jesus said in, in verse, uh, verse 45, chapter 10, verse 45. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. He came to seek and to save the lost. The lost are not doomed. He came to seek them. You see? He came to save them. He came to serve them. That's one connection. This is an illustration of our Lord's servant heart. Uh, there's another interesting connection because he says uh, to James and John, verse 36... What do you want me to do for you? Almost word for word. The, the, the question that he raises with Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? And that's what he keeps doing for us. He keeps asking, what, what do you want me to do for you? Not, not, this is, 
He didn't start out by saying, this is what you can do for me, and then I'll come through. See, grace turns that around. He says, what can I do for you? What can I do for you? And, of course, what it did for Bartimaeus is simply sharpen this intense uh, uh, sense of need that he had. blind man said, said Rabbi, I, I want to see. And Jesus said, go, your faith is healed. Immediately he received his sight. Follow Jesus. No, no hysterics. No wild, no wild gesticulations. It just calmly says, your faith is healed. What faith? Just that modicum of faith he had that the son of David had come to town and could do something for him that no one else could do. And so he just cried out, Lord Jesus, help me. And uh, he, uh, he regained his, uh, his sight. Only Jesus could do that. You know, the Old Testament predicted that uh, when the Messiah came, he would uh, give sight to the blind. There are at least three references in Isaiah, which we'll be looking at, 29, 35, and 42, 41. He says, uh, Isaiah says that when he comes, he'll restore sight to the blind. No one did that in the Old Testament. None of the disciples ever did that. This man was, uh, was he had lost his eyesight to the point where no physician could help him. No medicine could cure him, but Jesus could. Because he was the son of David, the one that was promised. And uh, when he voiced his request, uh, the Lord met his needs. And and it was only the Lord that could do that. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. Only he can satisfy. Uh, People tell me they, they have come to Christ just as this man did, just by the process of elimination. They just ran out of alternatives. That... No one else to whom they could go. I read uh, uh, just this last week of Malcolm Muggeridge's uh, conversion again. And he put it this way. He says, I came back to where I began. To that other king, one Jesus. To the Christian notion that man's efforts to make himself personally and collectively happy in earthly terms are doomed to failure. He must indeed, as Christ said, be born again, be a new man, or he's nothing. So I at least have concluded, having failed to find any other alternative proposition, that it is Jesus or nothing. And uh, we're told that this man went on following Jesus. Now, uh, it's interesting that in the other accounts, his name, in in Matthew at least, his, his name is not given. As a matter of fact, all Matthew tells us is that there were two beggars. Mark tells us that uh, he he focuses on the one, the one named Bartimaeus. Here's a man with no name that made a name for himself, and I think he probably became someone very prominent in the early church, one of of Jesus' uh, distinguished uh, disciples. I think there's something more to this phrase, he followed him to the city, than uh, than just uh, the simple fact that he trailed along behind Jesus. I think he became one of his disciples, willing to go and face death just as our Lord uh, Lord Jesus was, and he was known in the early church, and that's why his name, though it is not a name, that's why his name became uh, became famous. And I, I thought of the people that I've known and seen that, that I reckon to be hopeless, the down-and-outers, the people that seem to have no interest, no hunger for God. And I have to be reminded again from this story that that no one is, is without hunger. No one is without their, their, the hopeless elements of their life. Very often, uh, people out there, people on the street, 
people that we know in our businesses seem to have it all together. They seem to have no hungers or thirsts. They seem to have, uh, have everything well in hand. And, and yet I know, I know that there's something, there's something way down deep inside that they just cannot deal with. And these are the lost that Jesus is, is seeking. Um, I received a call last year, about midway through the year, and discovered that my high school class was having its 40th anniversary in 1990. I graduated high school in 1950. That's a long time ago. And uh, I was stunned when I uh, heard this voice because the fellow who called me was the biggest hood in Highland Park High School. Uh, it, it amazed me that he even graduated. And as we talked, I discovered that he was a stockbroker in the city of Dallas and doing extremely well. And he had a family and he had grandchildren like I. And, and we were just chatting and, and talking and a lot of memories flooded back into my, into my mind. And, and I noticed as we talked that he, he seemed to be edging closer to something all the time. He had called to tell me he was the, he was the chairman of the committee that was putting together this, uh, this reunion, and he was calling me to tell me about the reunion, which I wasn't able to make. But as we talked, I realized he just kept edging closer, and then it suddenly dawned on me that Bob had become a Christian. And we began to talk about that, and it turned out that he was led to Christ by Bob Irby, who was an even bigger thug than he. <laughs> and these two guys had ganged up on their classmates to start sharing Christ with them, and I know that's why he called, because he could have sent a letter, just picking people off. I'm not sure that he thought I was a thug, but just picking people off and beginning to, to talk to them about what it means to know Christ. And he was just talking about, he wasn't trying to put any pressure on anyone, just talking about his own, his own love for Christ. And it's the way it's done. You know, it's just one beggar telling another beggar where they can go to find, uh, to find bread. You read the first chapter of John and you get a vivid impression of how evangelism is best done. Uh, Andrew and, and John were standing with John the Baptist and they, John the Baptist saw Jesus and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, and John and Andrew began to tag along with Jesus and he said, you know, what, Who are you and what should we uh, be thinking here? And Jesus said, Come and see. And, and so Andrew, uh, after spending some time with Jesus, went to get his brother, Peter, and John went to get his brother, James. So then there were four that were, spot, that were following after Jesus. And then uh, uh, Philip began to follow Jesus, and he goes to get his friend, Nathaniel. And he says, come see the one that uh, is probably the one we've been looking for. And one by one, the, the torch is just passed from one person to the next. That's the way the gospel has always been, been passed down the line. And the most unlikely people in the world are touched in that in that way. See, the people were thinking of of Bartimaeus. He wouldn't be interested in spiritual things. And then they were thinking about Jesus. He wouldn't be interested in, in Bartimaeus. He, he wouldn't want to be around the likes of, of him, the son of uncleanness. They misunderstood the whole process. People out there are very much looking for help, and our Lord is very much looking to help them. And we're, we're the agents. We're part of the process. We get to just tell other beggars where, uh, where we found bread. And the gospel is passed on from one to the other. And the most unlikely people are touched by it. 
I have a friend who's sitting right back there now who actually reads philosophy. All of us would like to read philosophy, but he actually reads this stuff. <clears throat> and I had an interesting conversation with him last week. Uh, he, was, he has been reading Augustine again. And he had come across an updated uh, translation of one of Augustine's uh, writings, the Confessions. He said, for the first time I thought of him as a real man. And uh, triggered, set off a whole bunch of thoughts in my mind. You know, and I started picturing Augustine. Augustine was a philosophy professor at the University of Milan. And I pictured him in my mind uh, with, uh, you know, Birkenstocks and a pair of uh, raggy old Levi's and, and a Mexican Serapi shirt and long hair and droopy mustache and granny glasses and looking like all the philosophy professors I've ever seen. You know, walking across the campus. And uh, that was Augustine. And he was living with a young woman at the time who was, who was not, his, not his wife. And uh, he really had, you know, from the outside, you, uh, from the, from looking, viewing from the outside, it wouldn't have, he wouldn't appear to have any interest in spiritual things at all. His mother was a Christian. Her name was Monica. And when he accepted the position, the chair at the University of Milan, and left Alexandria, she was, she was beside herself. She wept for days because she figured this was the last chance that he had to find Christ there in Alexandria, where he's surrounded by her family and by other Christian friends. He went off to Milan, and she thought, it's all over. He'll be in that pagan setting, and he'll, have, he'll never find Christ. And he just happened one day to wander into a church service, of all places, and he heard this fellow Ambrose preach, who was one of the most brilliant minds of this, of this century. And Augustine was just captured by this man's intellect, and he sat under his preaching, and he began to feel conviction for his sin. And some weeks later, he was sitting out in a park, Nobody was around him. And he, he had a, a scroll of the, of the book of Romans with him, and someone had given him. And there, it was just laying on the, on the bench beside him, and he, there were some children playing around him, and they were chanting some uh, little Latin ditty. They were, playing a song, uh, they were playing some game, and they were singing this little tune. And he picked up a couple of words in it, Tolelegi, Tolelegi, take up and read, take up and read in Latin. And he picked up the book of Romans and he read it and his eye fell on the verse that said, put off all these manifestations of the flesh, and wickedness, and sensuality, and put on Christ. And just in the quietness of his own heart, sitting on that park bench, he put on Christ. And he didn't know much at all, except the, the Lord Jesus could help him. And you know, now we're always quoting Augustine, and he's probably the most has, has the most profound effect on the on the Christian faith of any anyone. And yet, at the outset, he would have been the most unlikely candidate of all. So I just want you to understand: there are people out there who who really do need the Lord Jesus. Jesus Himself tells us that when the Spirit of Truth has come, He will convince the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. That's the antecedent witness. He's already, he's already out there talking to people and confronting them with their hopelessness. And our job is just to bring them to Jesus. See, not, you have to understand how little Bartimaeus understood. He didn't know anything about the uh, superlapsarian uh, uh, theory of the decrees. He didn't know anything about Al- Anselmian uh, uh, atonement theories. Uh, he didn't know whether he was a creationist or an evolutionist. He didn't know what he was. 
uh, he, you know, he probably couldn't even read the Bible. And even if he read the Bible, he might not have, have believed it. You don't have to believe that the Bible is the Word of God to come, come to Christ. I believe it is, and I believe you will after, after a while. I think we grow into that knowledge. You don't even have to know that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's God incarnate. You don't have to know any of those things. All you have to know is that Jesus is the Son of David, who was promised from the very beginning, who has come to redeem you, has come to set you free. And if you cry out, Lord Jesus, help me, he'll put you on the road. I, my favorite Lewis quote, one which you've heard me quote before, is uh, um, he, well, he says, uh, down through the ages, when, people like, uh, when the people needed wisdom, they might cry out, William Shakespeare, help me, and nothing much happens. <laughs> or if they needed courage, they might cry out, Billy Budd, help me. Only a resident of UK would think of that. Billy Budd, help me. And uh, not much happens. But he says, for 1,900 years, whenever men and women have been in desperate need and they've cried out, Lord Jesus, help me, something has happened. Something has happened. And that's our task, just to bring people to Jesus. When, when you have an opportunity to talk to someone, don't start with the gospel. Start by saying, Lord Jesus, help them to see you in me. And then just talk about what, what the Lord has done for you. you see. Lift him up. Uh, John tells us, Jesus' words were, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Just exalt him. Just talk about him. I have people say to me, oh, you know, you Christians, you're behind all the problems in the world, the pogroms against Jews and, and the Salem witch trials and the Ku Klux Klan and you know, the colonialism and every evil that, that we can think of in the world, you, you Christians are responsible for all. And I say, well, I don't know about any of that. As a matter of fact, most Christians are pretty unattractive. Let's talk about Jesus. See? That's what matters. Let's talk about him. Let's center on him. And I, I find it, that when we just talk about him, he is an enormously attractive person. And people recognize instinctively and intuitively that he's the one they've been looking for. Can I leave you with one one passage? Just happened to come across this this last week in the last last page of the Bible. In the book of Revelation. Jesus says, "The spirit and the bride say come." The spirit and the bride say come. That's our message. Uh, the Spirit is the Holy Spirit. And as I said before, His witness is antecedent to ours. He's witnessing to people. Come to Christ. Come to Jesus. Let Him meet your needs. That's the Spirit witnessing to your heart there if you have a hunger and a thirst after righteousness. And uh, the church corroborates His witness. We think of it the other way. that We witness and the Holy Spirit corroborates our witness. No, no, no. His, his witness goes first. And then our, our witness simply confirms what they what they know is true. And that's the message. Come, all you that labor and are heavy laden, come to Jesus and he'll give you rest. And uh, then the next phrase in the verse says, and let him who hears say, come. You, you see the process? The spirit and the church witness to, to the down and outers, the up and outers, the people that seem hopeless, come. They come and they turn around and say to their friends, come. And as a matter of fact, as the verse goes on to say, whoever 
is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. It's for free. It's for nothing. It costs Jesus everything. But it costs us nothing. We can come and freely accept what, what he's given. See, that is the offer that we make to people. Come. Now, uh, my prayer would be that all of us would simply ask that, that w- to be available. That's all. It's God's job to get us to the right place to the ra- at the right time to talk to the right person. We don't need to worry about that. He, he, he's the one that positions us rightly. It's just our job to be available to him, to say to people, the most unlikely people that you encounter, come, come to Jesus. See, that's why we don't have uh, altar calls here, because that's your job, see? That's my job, too, out there in the community, but, but it's not my job to lead people to Christ up here. That, that sometimes is misunderstood by people in this church. They say, don't you have any evangelistic passion? Oh, yes, we do. But we feel that evangelism is best done as you people out there in the community are saying to your friends and your neighbors, come, come to Jesus. Why would, you know, I don't want to rob you of that privilege. Why would you want to bring your friends down here so I can lead them to Christ? I'm not even sure I have the gift of evangelism. But I can witness, and so can you. We can witness to our friends, and we uh, get the joy of uh, seeing those people come into a relationship with with Jesus Christ. So uh, just be available. That's all. Just be available. God will bring people into your life to whom you can say, come, come to Jesus. Let's pray. Would you stand with me, please? Help us to see, Lord, that people truly need uh, you. Uh, we We would almost think by looking around us that he is simply one option or one alternative to the misery of of life. But uh, we know, because we believe what you've told us, and we know it's true in our own lives, that that, uh, there's no other alternative. It's Jesus only. Help us to get that in our hearts, keep that in our minds, live that way, and, uh, and, and, and act responsibly. And Lord... Uh, just help us to to know how to uh, to make visible in our in our sphere of influence, our neighborhood, our house, our job, to make visible this this one who is not seen by so many. Uh, people around us are blinded; they don't see. We want them. We want you to open their eyes so they can see you, your beauty. And they can begin to follow you. Make that true, Lord. Use us this week to draw people into relationship with you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.